I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Ashish Prashar. He's the Global Chief Marketing Officer at RGA. He also goes by Ash. And we'll talk today about his experience um, within the corporate world, as well as where he got his start, which was actually in being incarcerated as a teenager. So Ash joined RGA most recently from Publicis Sapient, um, but we talk about his time in advertising, creative, and his lengthy career actually in UK politics, as well as US politics, and how that relates to what he's doing today at RGA and where RGA is headed in the future. So I hope you enjoy this show with Ash Prashar. Well, Ash, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. I thought we would just dive right into the deep end and talk about incarceration and the fact that uh, you were incarcerated at a young age. And I want to know a little bit about that experience before we get to the business side, because I can only imagine that it defines kind of your your day to day experience to some degree yeah i mean thanks for starting there i mean it's it's funny you say diving into the deep end i think that's where everyone wants to start so um i think it's trying to explain it is you know i didn't grow up like any different to most kids i would say where i was in a middle class family in the uk and 
I, I had an event in my life when I was 17 that kind of destroyed the foundations of what I thought my life was then. With my parents getting divorced, it wasn't the best. And it sent me down a path with friends, by the way, who were already in my life. So it wasn't like I wasn't around this group of friends, friends who also experienced loss and suffering and there are other things in their lives, like quite literally loss, having lost a loved one. And we got into lots of shenanigans together, right? We, we were mischievous. So we basically did things and every time we got away with things, they became my de facto family, by the way. That was it, right? It was a replacement. And every time we did things, we grew closer. And then to the point where we did something that got us nicked. Um, and we stole 30,000 pounds worth of merchandise from a department store in London, Harvey Nichols. And, you know, you'd think that would be um, a moment, you know, because we were children, you'd think at the time that, you know, might be for forgiven, you know, because we all admitted our guilt. We'd all um, volunteered for programs and we'd all also, you know, were very transparent with the police at the time. And we were sentenced to a year in a young offenders institute in London. And a year for a first offense, for something where we accepted guilt, for something that they got, which was also as, you know, how we use the term victim and victimless. This was a victimless crime, it was theft, right? So, and theft from a department store, which had insurance. And we were given a year in prison. And yes, it was transformative. I experienced everything in prison and I think the best way to describe it is possibly even the day I arrived. So after sentencing, we were held in a cell under the court and we went nearly the whole day without food or water. And then they transported us eventually to this place called Felton, which is like a young offenders Rikers for people who don't know where it is in London. And once we got there, this is where they strip your identity and your humanity and your freedom. You were taken off all your personal belongings, your clothes, anything that's on you. Uh, you're stripped and then given like prison standard gear. They give you a number and they start addressing you by that number or and all parts of your surname. So they're slowly taking parts of you away. And it was that first night was I was taken from that check-in effectively area to my cell. And when I got there, the cell door was open and I looked around. It was November, so it was cold. Um, the sheets were stained. There was probably a pillow. And then there was like a couple of packets of toothpaste and a toothbrush. It was profoundly miserable and horrible and deliberately designed experience for that. And the guard, before you shut the door, said the next time I'd be out would be breakfast where I'd see anyone again. And he shut the door. He slammed the door. And I think I sat on the edge of my bed. And the reason I remember this so vividly is because it was the last time I probably was the young me because I just cried. I cried all night. I think I am not ashamed to admit that. I felt like I needed to get all this out of my system because I knew what I needed to be to survive, which wasn't me, which wasn't the child that was in prison. And I, you know, let it all out in that moment. And I think I stayed awake all night till dawn because I actually remember the door opening and I'd lost track of time. And that morning I saw my fellow you'd call like other incarcerated individuals or inmates and their children. Now, when I look back now, we were all children and we lock up our kids. And these kids over that period that I was incarcerated and me experienced everything from, you know, racist abuse, physical abuse, food being taken away from you days at a time. 
you know, guards setting older children and younger children, almost like for sport and taunting, constant taunting, because they knew if you reacted, you get to stay longer, right? And the only reason I survived any of this was I had people on the outside who fought for me. My aunt at the time, who was, was like a big sister, and she fought the Justice Department in the UK to allow me to take what we have in the UK called my A-levels, which is in between school and university in prison. I was the first person to take them. They had to fight the warden to allow me to have the books to actually then take the, to study for them because, you know, they granted me to take them, but then there was no way to actually study for them. And also above all, she fought to get me out earlier because she knew every day I was in there, there was a greater opportunity for something horrible to happen. Some part of me to be lost or all of me be lost to the system. And when I got released, her, my grandparents provided a safe space to go back to, right? Above all, they, and it's not that other people don't have a safe space. They, when I think about when people talk about recidivism, it's not that people don't love people. They do, but you know, prison can break you to a point where you're often ostracized in your own community. It can give you other issues. It can build, you can build mental health issues in prison. You can build other societal structural people talk about like oh these guys who were in prison they must be super confident you know it breaks you breaks every part of your being that it's not easy to come back to society and it was it was designed deliberately to do that it wasn't designed to actually reform or you know help people rehabilitate it was designed to break people and keep you trapped mentally in prison even after you were out and that's what we call like something that's supposed to be there to reform us and the reason I appreciate you starting here is it also was arguably in my life, one of the strangely most influential things that drove my career there afterwards, because it was when people ask me what, what drives me never going back there. What drives me is the people who put me in prison. What drives me is the society that, that has created that as the solution to problems that are very small in people's lives. That created me. And I kind of bless them for that because that makes sense of the devil to me. I now know what I don't want to see in society and what I don't want to see people go through. And I fight to get rid of that. I, and I keep driving in my career and, my, and the personal projects I do outside of here to, to abolish that system. First and foremost, thanks for sharing the story and your reflections on that experience. I mean, I, I can only imagine what that was like i really don't have any comparison points but to your point about like it's the anti-reform you know and i think you mentioned this too that it's designed intentionally to be that right it's about containment and control and if you're impressionable young man or kid in your case luckily you had that aunt i mean how many people don't have that support system outside probably most, frankly, if I think about society and how it's structured today and who gets incarcerated. And also what type of support they can give you, right? So like you're talking about, especially in the United States, I was incarcerated in the UK, you have intergenerational people who've got a record or because of the way you know, our system is deliberately targeted, black people and other communities of color, it's hard to help. And people haven't got homes because people don't recognize when you have a record, you can't get homes, you can't rent a lot of time let alone even get to the job thing, you know? So you can't even put like a roof over your head. So how do you 
even if you're out there and you love a, a human being who's coming, who's coming home from incarceration, how do you help if you've also, you're also in the same boat? Where did you, I mean, you get out, you know, you've had some support through uh, that experience as much as they could provide and, and, and argue their way to help you. You somehow find your way to employment. That could not have been an easy process. Like, how did you end up landing a job and, and where did you start? So this is uh, one of, I guess, the fun stories in this is, um, so basically my grandfather threw me in front of a journalist. Now, the long story here is that he, one of his dear friends is a, a author by the name of Donald James in the UK. He's now passed away. He had a book launch and this news editor from News of the World at the time, which is a property of News Corp, um, was at this launch. And the, the author and my grandfather threw me in front of him and said, so my grandson has just come back from prison. This is like a year and a bit after that, but you know, he kind of exaggerated the point and wants to transform his life. What do you think? And this editor at the time, basically, and his name is Andy Colson asked, you know, what do I want to do with my life? You know, he didn't never ask me what I did. And though I'm not naive to the audience here, like if he worked at News Corp, he definitely knew what I did once he went home and checked. Right. So, but I, I, you know, I, but he never asked me. He just wanted to know what I wanted to do. And what Andy saw was, you know, someone with a bit of hustle, someone who's willing to transform their life, someone who will get the job done. He didn't see me for the record. He didn't see me for the scarlet letter. He saw me for me. And, you know, I am often, I look back at that moment a lot and think, you know, and this is the sad truth of it. People all the way through my life have transformed my life, right? Not society, not structures, nothing that's tried to reform me people and their individual humanity has been the driving force of my transformation and my my journey and he took a chance and because of him I worked three years at News Corp and worked at uh, News Corp's properties in the UK I got to be a reporter a very young reporter I was 19 at the time uh, it was almost I started off as like a mentee and then into the role and then from there I followed Andy Colson into the political world where I worked with him and other editors from his ilk who moved to this world for the conservative party in the UK. And look, people are going to ask, oh, wait, you worked for conservatives and News Corp. And, I, and, I, and I'm going to say, unless you've had a criminal record at a young age, you, you have no right to tell me who to work for. You know, uh, you know opportunity is not given. And for all the people listening who are super progressive, I am far more left of center than you as a European socialist. And I would say to you that like, Many of you wouldn't give anyone with a record a job right now, even today, even with all that we've gone through with BLM and everything else, it still took individuals to act. And what I knew was I knew what I had to acquire to actually transform my life. And it was the same privileges those people who gave me opportunity had. And when I got the chance to do that for long enough, I started to pick my own bosses, right? So I worked there for a couple of years, working for the likes of David Cameron and Boris Johnson, and you know, as Bar Boris's press secretary when he was the when he's running to be mayor in '08, and after that was all done, I I know right? there's some stories there. I did my moral part that people are looking for, right? I quit. I wrote an op-ed, a stinging op-ed, in the only way I knew how to do in a newspaper in the UK, saying how this conservative rebrand was all a lie and you shouldn't vote for them. And I came out here to the United States to work on uh, the president. Uh, well, pre um, at that point, candidate Obama's first election. Um, and I worked in Ohio and Pennsylvania for some people who have been currently serving in the White House now. 
you know, that was transformative. That's when I got to start picking who I was. But it took me years of acquiring privilege, privilege I'd lost in an act that I did as a child and was brutalized for. But, you know, I had to effectively serve my time outside. With people, by the way, I don't hate, you know, like for all the the right left we do now, there are people in that story, both for the conservatives and at News Corp, who transformed my life. You know, they might not sit on the same ideological side of the aisle as me, but they they gave me an opportunity for whatever reason, and it changed my stars. Well, to your point earlier, I mean, it's it's people at the end of the day, <laughs> like, and uh, I think inherently people are good, even though in this divided political space that we live in today, um, it's kind of hard to see that we're all people at the end of the day because everyone just takes their side. But I want to see, how did you end up from politics into like communications and marketing? Yeah, so that was even more complicated and long. So I haven't been in this game for a couple of years. So you're going to laugh. So I, after doing the Obama stint, I worked out here in the US with Democrats and went home, did a bit more politics. It was only up to about 2012 where I got sick of it. Same cycles, elections every couple of years. And you kind of get like, okay, this is, this is it. But also when I left politics in 2014, you know, we're talking about a different world, right? You remember this. Obama was president. England was still in Europe at the time. So, <laughs> and there was no Brexit. So I was like, okay, if I'm ever going to leave, this is the moment to leave. So I started to consult. And it was, it was a really interesting moment because I started to consult with brands and businesses, especially startups that were having problems with policy. You remember this time where Airbnb and Ubers and everyone, and then we still have these problems today, but they were going up against local governments who didn't know how to handle and license them or figure that stuff out. And they were looking for comms people from all walks of life um, who understood policy. And as you know, political comms people have to work on policy all the time. So there was a unique moment for me to get involved. And I did that for a couple of years until 2016 <laughs> happened when, you know, Brexit happened and then Trump got elected. And I was like, I have to get back in the game. And I went to go work back for the Democrats with uh, some friends who were in VP Biden's office that carried on campaigning for a couple of years up till the midterms. And I'm speeding through this to get to, your, to answer your question, which is by 2018, I was like, okay, just did the midterms, won the house, you know, we, we, and I worked with some amazing people through that process, but I needed a break. And I ended up working, doing comms at Publicis and I did that. Um, while still kind of politically active, you know, I'm not going to pretend I was a publicist and stop doing that other work. I, you know, still was helping candidates on the side, but it was my first corporate job, only a couple of years running comms and doing crisis stuff at Publicist Sapient. And it was unique. It was a unique experience. And the reason I took that, and I'll tell you why, because no matter what happened at the, the next election, and which is what I went back to do as well, publicists at that time allowed me to continue doing another line of work that I was doing all along this journey. So from the time of 1030 to now, I've been talking about justice reform and working on abolition. Publicists were very okay with me doing, they were okay with that being public, you know, and I say public, I was already publicly known for it, but like I'd spend my time doing it, right? How many corporates, this is pre-BLM's 20 thing last year. And and, you know, I'm sure people there weren't comfortable with it, but they wanted me and they were willing to take that. And knowing that I'd be outspoken about other issues at the same time of giving me that that job. And it was just a healthy balance for me. I got something out of it the way they did. And it was last year where, you know, we went into a pandemic and I went back to work on VP Biden's campaign. Uh, oh, I still call him VP because that's what I know him for. But uh, I uh, candidate Biden's campaign 
I was doing all this work in the justice space and, you know, I had this little job at Publicis. <laughs> so um, yeah, last year was one of those years where I think all of us didn't really sleep much. I, someone joked with me that I had three jobs and I probably did. And I definitely, by the end of the year, was exhausted. But um, it led me to a moment where I knew after the election, after we all took a breath, after that result was declared, that I needed something different. And it was a good friend of mine who worked at RGA, Tom Morton, who is the global chief strategy officer who reached out to me and asked me what I was doing next. And we became friends through my justice work. Like, so a little thing known about Tom is he cares a lot about this work about ab uh, prison abolition as well. And you wouldn't take it from that because his career has all been in advertising and creative and design and strategy, but he, uh, he's been a great ally and friend in that space um, in my time in New York. And um, he asked me what I was doing next and they had a chief marketing officer, global chief marketing officer role open. They were looking for something different someone different and you know they were looking for what ended up being me and um i met sean Lyons, our ceo and uh the rest is history and i really fell in love with their approach around building things for a human future and i'm not trying to just sell the line i, I like the i love the idea that we're trying it's not perfect but we're trying to design things for people and we're trying to design our client work around people and as you talk, pointed out in my story, a lot of it's centered around people and all the work I've done in politics. When you campaign, anyone who's listening, who's a campaigner knows you talk to people. And I kind of admired that, that they were doing that work. And again, they were willing to also, not even willing, they wanted me to continue the work I'm doing in the prison abolition space as well and, and fully support all that. And that's how I ended up here. It's like people who have a conscious who actually believe in the stuff I want to do outside of here, knowing that's my life cause while, you know, at the same time working for them. We'll come back to RGA in a moment because it, it's kind of a storied business in and of itself too. And, and they historically, I guess, have reinvented themselves, frankly, um, a number of times uh, since the founding. But um, let's come back to that in a minute. I, before we leave this social reform and like path and your personal background, your activism, how do you think about the marketing industry and like its role in social reform? I mean, you've kind of been operating in, in parallel to this point in your career, right? Like, and I'm just curious how you think about the marketing industry. Are we like helping? Are we hurting? I mean, there's a lot of talk, right? Like <laughs> about doing better with our skills and abilities, but just wonder how you think about it. I mean, we also have a long history, right? In this space, right? We, um, I think, you know, we've, we've, we've helped brand the war on drugs, which we can all accept now is probably a big mistake because it disproportionately targeted black people and communities of color, we've, we've not done enough. We are disproportionately, you know, we're not like, making Google money, but like we are one of the most powerful industries in the world and, and we help reflect what's going on in society. And I would say traditionally, we've probably not been on the side of justice. So we have a lot of making up to do. And I would suggest, you know, I, I think it starts with creating a new narrative. Narrative is powerful and it's our responsibility to create as a creative industry to question what ideas and values we are disseminating, you know, what stereotypes or biases we're introducing and to whom we are giving platforms through our work to, you know, the creative industry has served as an arbiter of ideas and a reflection of society's failing. And we've managed to 
help propaganda machines change our culture for negative reasons about a literal race and a community. And the question is now, what side are we on moving forward? What new narrative can we create? We also have to re-examine our past and what harmful narrative we have helped to create this prison industry to this mass incarceration industry from branding police officers. You know, um, Hollywood has a role in this too, right? I mean, they've cop shows galore and cop movies and they're probably, as somebody told me once, they're probably the most complicated character, but if you met any of them in real life, they're not. But uh, they, you know, they're, you know, you're looking for like lethal weapon and all this stuff, but they're not that complicated. I think we've also played a massive role in that, the branding around like how we see them as heroes and everything else, when a lot of them are just brutal and are there to enforce a system that was created after slavery in the United States of America. They are effectively continuing that like negative trope that they built around black people and other communities of color. Look, our industry must stop advertising, branding and designing and even building technology for police departments and other oppressive institutions. We must, I, I believe we should end relationships with companies that are, are making or institutions are making profit or are helping hurt our brothers and sisters in the community. Look, there is no way you don't know somebody indirectly not impacted by the criminal justice system. If you know any community of color or any black person, one in three people are impacted. You know, that is insane. 70 million people in America have a criminal record. You can't tell me all those people should be given up on. That's a third of our population. There's no way we don't know those people. And this, in, this machine that's been created hasn't has had marketing allies and advertising allies and creative allies. And what we should do is pull back from that work and actually start telling the right story about communities and uplifting real people's stories. We should also look, we can hire, right? We have the opportunity. To, some of the best creatives take their ideas from literally the street, legitimately the street. I think the best creatives in America are the street culture that we live in, are surrounded by, but they're not getting paid for that. Why are we not employing them? Like some of the best artists, creatives, technologists, they come from the street and we should be employing them. And also we should create platforms with justice organizations. You know, we do this with things like Planned Parenthood or, or uh, Oxfam and other things. Why can't we do it with justice reform organizations? Why can't we build a platform to actually campaign to dismantle the system that is oppressing our, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters and, and our community and I actually think with the power this industry has, we have an opportunity to not just influence our people in our industry, but our clients, and then in turn, society. Like we, we do have that. And I think sometimes we forget that. We look lost trying to figure out how to play a really good role in this space. But I think this is, uh, I, I, I think we go back to like, we know we're really, we know we have a lot of influence. If we go from that lens, I think there's nothing we can't do to, uh, to have a positive impact on the prison industrial complex and the justice system as it exists today. I agree. And you don't think about all of the aspects, I guess, that we've contributed to as a society and as a as an industry to prop up all the forces that maybe haven't worked out to our advantage now that we think think back on it, you know, 2020 hindsight, I guess. But it's true. And I think in in some cases we're continuing down this these slippery slopes, whether it's issues like privacy or um, transparency of what we're what companies are doing and things like that. But um, but to your point, we have a huge voice. We are hugely influential as an industry, 
And man, just first step, like you described, hiring the people that were co-opting their ideas and creativity from to begin with, you know, that would be a good place to start. That's a really good place to start at a really basic level. <laughs> right. Well, you know, one of, one of the things as I take away, and I'm sure as, as listeners are going to take away, is that you come from a different place, literally, than a lot of the folks that I've had on the show. You are, I think to use your word, a campaigner or you know, somebody that's operated in the, in the election cycles, maybe more so than a marketer. Um, and I think last time we talked briefly, you, know, you didn't even see yourself necessarily as a marketer. How has that prepared you for a CMO job at RGA? And, and what does that actual role look like to you? When I think about campaigning, it's all about, think about even doing it around a candidate, right? It's all about the reputation you're creating and the relationships you have, right? And if you even look back to Joe Biden's election just now quickly, you know, everyone thought he was down and out and he had relationships. He had relationships with uh, Jim Clyburn in the South, right? And everyone remembers that South Carolina primary where he rolled Bernie Sanders and then he had relationships with the black leaders of all the Southern states, and it transformed his campaign, his candidacy. And then obviously like a movement got behind him as he, it was clear he was gonna be the winner, but reputation and relationships under that campaigning thing is, is how you win elections. And relationships are with the voter, with other people who stand by you, they're with other senators. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Like congressional figures, they're with backers. And your reputation is the policies you set out. I mean, that's pretty much the same for brands and businesses. And when you think about it, our biggest priority, when we think about what we do as organizations, you know, our people, our people are our biggest asset, right? Anywhere, I really believe anywhere there's people, there's power. And those people are powerful creatives who are designing things for our clients who in turn are selling and creating and providing and creating experiences for people. So all of that is based on relationships. Nothing is different to campaigning in that, uh, in that space. You know, I think we get into this frame where we overcomplicate marketing. And when it comes down to it, 
it's all about people. You know, I've, when I came into RGA, I wanted to build our marketing around our individuals. They're the people, not just, they're the people who can tell the story about how they created the work, right? They are the people who created the work in the first place. They're the people who can tell you and me about why they did it. And they are, they themselves are an interesting story. Their ideas are what's changing society. People today want to know that story. People want to know what's going into it. Who's the person behind it, how it's done. And so they can feel really part of it. And I've built everything around our people with, you know, my partners in, in the exec team, because I really believe they are our best asset, you know, in the same way you build an election around candidates. You know, it's the same ethos because RGA is a brand, it's a business, right? Um, so the clients we work on, but when I t- you know, but really it's the ideation and the creativity of the people who I work with are, that differentiates us from the rest of the industry and the rest of the world and whoever else is doing work in this space. And everybody's got them, by the way. Everybody, and I'm sure across, I'd like to say we have better ones, but like, I, you know, than, uh, better people than other people, but um, other organizations, but I'm sure everyone's got those people. I think our industry has been frightened to champion their people because it's scared to lose them. But I tell you what, if you are, if you really care for them, if you love them, if you, if you, if you treat them right, also part of this, by the way, the PR side of this, at least like, I think people really like, really value when their brand backs them, people will stay, you know, too often we like put their ideas, we want to champion the work and we want to do this, but we don't talk about our people, the people behind it. And that's where the similarities are. We can't, on my team campaigns behind our people because those people get to talk about our work. They get to talk about our ideas, our values, um, what we believe in and how we found, how we foundationally build everything we build. Right. And, and that's the part that's really similar. And I think that's, that's what we, that's how I've been able to bring some of those campaign skills to what we're doing at RGA, you know, really humanize what we do because we put the faces of the people who are building it out front. Uh, not to just talk about work, but to talk about how they do what they do. The stuff that really what the real world's interested in. It's a unique pr- approach because most, to your point, most agencies or, or folks in the creative or the marketing space, you know, they, they talk about the output, the ad, the campaign. You know, they don't talk about the valuable people that <laughs> brought that to life, you know, or sparked the idea, um, the genesis of the idea. Because without that, you don't get the output, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> to your point. Um, so kudos kudos to focus on that and and i probably shouldn't say this publicly but um you know you you talk about the uh, vp biden my wife and i were having this conversation through the last election cycle but i think one of the more lovable politicians and i'm sure everyone <laughs> everyone that that doesn't agree with my political views just knows exactly where i stand now but his gaffes and all right without his gaffes he would not be biden without his without his ice cream cone or, you know, the, the look of wonder as, uh, <laughs> as he was watching fireworks after he was elected president, <laughs> he looked like a, you know, a three year old or four year old kid, you know, <laughs> like just in all of the fireworks display. I think without those human moments, you forget what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, and look, and also let's just also be honest the last 18 months, I'm sure, have been hard for a lot of people, right? A lot of people listening. And we are lucky to be alive. We're lucky to be able to help each other in little ways and big ways. And we're lucky. You know, the reason we're so lucky is because we're helping each other, actually. In fact, 
you know, and that's what actually makes us happy, right? We talk, there's a lot of people who talk about the negative stuff that's happened in the last 18 months. Uh, let's talk about the positive stuff that's happened. I've seen community organizations come out from grassroots from kids who want to help elderly people in their neighborhood during the, the hardest times of the pandemic. I've seen people help people get to vaccines nowadays. I've seen people book people vaccine appointments. I've seen all the little stories that we don't get into the news because they are the things that have brought us together. We care about each other more than we are told we care about each other. And I think when you think about when we do marketing comms and everything else, well, let's forget the the fancy words and the campaigns and everything else and go back to what got us through that pandemic in the first place. It's that human experience. It's that humanity we have that, you know, for one minute was clapping for healthcare workers, but also like marching in the streets, risking its lives all through last year. And look, is everything perfect at the end of this? No, I'm not going to pretend it's not. Uh, Biden and me, while I am so grateful for the opportunities he's given me and for the, um, to help get Trump out of even the office because that's a lot worse of a situation for me at least and for a lot of other people I know and but the one thing we don't disagree we don't agree on everything me and him are totally opposite on prisons so I will fight from the outside to help convert someone who is in the inside of government to try and make move the needle to you know for us and use the platform I have out here both as an abolitionist and a campaigner as an activist but also as an exec and a company to help government move along like get to where I'm never then they might never get to where I am but every person that gets released is a life that's saved and I think the one thing we can all agree on after the last year is we should value each human life well said I don't even need to say more <laughs> thank you well let's talk a little bit more about RGA we talked about it and I, I punted it off for a little bit but the company has gone through a lot of different transitions over the years I, I read something about there's like a nine-year cycle at RGA. <laughs> and it's like a reinvention cycle, which frankly is probably pretty brilliant in the industries that they've operated in, frankly, over the years. But you mentioned, you know, this focus on design or uh, design around people and like, what, where is RGA focused now? And what does that look like? You know, you could say, like, I love that you brought up the nine year cycle thing. Cause I, even I sometimes forget about that often, like, um, because like, you know, nine years can go past in nine minutes and work, you know, how it is now in a pandemic, but, um, but it's, it's interesting. Cause I think we're having a moment. I think it's, you know, RGA was, this is something I learned recently. So please forgive me if I'm ruining this story, but like Bob told me we were created in chaos because when he created RGA, you know, it was the 77, New York wasn't in the best place, you know, like it was blackouts and, you know, all the stuff that was going on. And I, and we've just recently had probably one of our best award seasons and we've, we were created in chaos, but I would, and now we have been creating in literal chaos with the pandemic and we've created some of our greatest work and it's more personal, more distributed and We've even created a new way to work through that because we've really gone and we've also decided we're going to lean into this whole future of work thing and actually allow people to decide how they work. Like they want to stay at home or they want to occupy space differently. It's really important because they've actually thrived some of them in this environment because we've discovered people are not going to return to a previous era. We're creating a new one. And Bob created this nine year cycle thing way back. But I actually think it's probably like half that time just because of technology and everything else. That's, but the definite big pivot moments have been nine years. And, you know, I think what's really interesting is we created, or Sean and his leadership team since transitioning from Bob, created this designing around, uh, designing a more human future just before the pandemic. Like they actually created it pre-pandemic because they, you know, they realized that we've never really created a value prop 
it's always been great work. It could not have been more perfectly timed, I guess. No one knew a pandemic was coming, but they really lent into that. This is pre-me. Like they, we want to talk about human-centered design. We should highlight and design design that has a positive impact in the human world. We should design like we are trying to have a positive human impact to people in the world. And it could not be more relevant right now. So there is a bit of a transition going on right now, but it also automatically accelerated because of the pandemic. It's funny, I, I would say we're, fu- you know, we fundamentally reshaped how we're doing stuff and it's weirdly come through our work and it's not been lip service. You know, I think we've actually used the pandemic to do some of our best work we've ever done in our existence. And, you know, I think what you're going to see is RGA is also in the fall launching a new, its own new brand that will reflect the people that actually work at RGA right now. You know, I'd say our brand was a red square before, and but it's a, it's fully the people here at RGA now. And I think that's going to be something that people take notice of in this fall. And it's going to be built around the diversity, the creativity, the distributedness, the, the new work, the new leadership, new principles in a way that, you know, we probably would have never done before. And it has accelerated because of a pandemic. It's funny how some of those things have, laid the groundwork for these opportunities. But the reason I bring up the human future thing is because we've done that work during this pandemic too, right? So we did something in the beginning of the pandemic called Merch Aid. The staff did it themselves. They were worried that people were going out of business, designers and you know small businesses. They create a platform for them so they could sell online. They grouped loads of people together so they could sell online. Then they pivoted to help black businesses through um, the BLM marches last year. And most recently they did the Stop the Asian Hate Merch Aid as well. So we built for people so they can also thrive in the pandemic. We had an amazing piece of work we did down in South America for an organization called ACA. And I don't know if you remember this last year, there was huge farming protests that started in India. Yes. And it's basically the government basically trying to the up the rate on them you know make it difficult for smaller independent farmers that wasn't just in india it ended up being in west africa and other parts of south america people just co-opted like big farming is killing small farms and we did this work with Aka where we designed them a platform it's it's a group of independent farmers in argentina to actually help them control their whole cycle they know when their crops are ready they know what its value is this allowed them to get it to the distributors this allowed them to have transparency in their process. It gave them the platform and the tools they needed to compete with big big ag. And that sort of work is creating a more human future. We're keeping small businesses, uh, local farmers in empowered when, you know, you think everything's against them, right? The way big ag operates. But, you know, and that's something, that's only just a small example of some of the projects and work we've taken on in the last year that is designing a more human future for clients. You know, this is not all just social justice or, or a pro bono work. This is this is us building to transform society. Because again, when I think about design, I think you and me talked about this in a quick conversation before this, which was um, everything around us is designed. Whether it's the experience of you shopping at Walmart and how you check out and everything like that, or whether it's you going through TSA and the airport, or being in a prison. Like everything is designed by people for people. Why don't we center around making that experience good? You know, and I think we can do more. And, you, and I think, and to bring this, to make this real for a lot more people, I'm sure that a lot of listeners got their vaccine through private pharmacy, 
right? Like a, like a Dwayne Reed or whatever it was, um, Walgreens, right? That rollout was painful. And we can do a lot of work to make that experience better and more human. Think about how that happened for a lot of people. Firstly, and these are stories just I know through the news, let alone stuff that uh, people who've told me stuff and anecdotally. Firstly, it was really hard to get an appointment. Then if you got an appointment, sometimes the app would just cancel it. This is literal stories we've seen read in the Times. And that's stressful enough. If you could get it back, here's what you'd have to do. It didn't connect to the store you were in. Sometimes you had to create, you had to do the same physical paperwork in the store, even though you've done it all online and you're told to only do it online. Then they have to still manually enter your stuff at the store once you've taken your shot, even though it's on a digital. When you're there, they do it on on an iPad, but they actually have to go and manually enter it. And then it doesn't directly connect to the state every time. So depending on the state you're in, your vaccine upload might take really a really long, a long time, right? So that is not a great human experience, <laughs> right? That is a terrible experience created by a brand and the state. And when I think about that holistically, I'm like, that's what businesses like RGA and other people who are trying to design to do corporate work can design a better human experience at the same time for those businesses and brands. Because guess what? They do want to transform. I, this all took them all by surprise with the pandemic. But if you come out the other end, I'm sure Walgreens and other people who are providing it through pharmacy will go, okay, we're not doing it that way again. And now knowing this pandemic's not ending with booster shots and everything else, they desperately need to transform their experience because people were frustrated. And that's a great example that I definitely think will hit home for a lot of people. Uh, we've been through that. We just went through that. We all know it was not great. And we could design that better all of us, like uh, just by thinking about it differently. Now, that's the type of work we're taking on. When you think about what RGA is doing, we're trying to design a better experience. We're innovating differently. And whether that can be through technology, it can be through in real life experiences in stores. It can be through designing platforms for farmers and helping, to, um, helping small businesses thrive in a pandemic. I mean, it's all those things and more. And I would say, uh, you know, I think the world hasn't cared about RGA is like a as a as a force for quite a while, but I definitely think the pandemic put us back on the map. Well, it's definitely. I mean, the pivots that you're in the process of making, and um, I, I can't wait till this fall to check out the relaunch, if you will, um, and and how that manifests itself. But it, it seems very on point for all the reasons that you've just described um, to focus back on putting humans at the center of our the experience that we're trying to design for them and it's funny because we've done a lot of that work internally so our people already feel like we've done it right so and there's a lot more work to do right so we've been doing it internally but you know we and like i said we created in chaos i I think the interesting thing is like this is going to fundamentally reshape how we show up in the world and above anything else i think it's going to really reflect the greatness of the people at rga less so even just rga I've got a few more questions for you and um, typically kind of switch gears, but I feel like we've been getting to know you throughout this entire conversation. So usually I, we transition from businessy conversation to personal conversation. And I ask a question, which I think you've already given me the answer to, which is, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are? I have to believe that was where we started the top of this conversation around incarceration, but I just want to make sure that there's not something else lurking in the shadows yeah, that we so have talked about. That is the defining experience of my life. I'm not going to pretend <laughs> otherwise <laughs> and say something was uh, something had a bigger impact than that did. But I, I, there is something I think that I'd share 
that is really important for people to recognize. So even though I was, you know, my life was transformed and I, I mentioned earlier on this story that uh, once I acquired enough privilege, I decided to go work for the people I wanted to work for, right? And I did it not in a quiet way. I did it through an opinion piece in a newspaper and, you know, risking relationships that were there for me. And I called out, you know, a political party. I called out my mentor for not being the thing that we told the world we were and moved before moving on. I'd say it was, again, another pivotal moment, not as obviously big as the incarceration experience, but I'd say it was the first time I became me. And it was the part of my life that was like, this is who I am, right? I thank you for everything you've done for me, but this is me. And I've been blessed to have some of those relationships come back into my life over years. But I want to say to people, stay true to who you actually are. If you have the privilege already to do that, just keep leaning into that. Employees and people have never been more powerful right now. You should recognize that and, and stay true to who you are because it was a big risk. And look, I had a lot of privilege, right? I, I was a former journalist working in political comms. I could place an op-ed, no problem, right? I, I, I was people, people were talking to me, but stay true to who you are, because that was the first time, you know, I set fire to all the other iterations of me and I had to survive all those things, whether it was through incarceration and through those years working on, for ideas that I didn't believe in, even though I believed in the people I was working with and decided to become like who I am. And it was a really pivotal moment. It totally makes sense. I mean, it's, it's the moment where you were able to display your own voice in black and white, <laughs> uh, in print, uh, so to speak. So what advice would you give somebody that was, or to your younger self, if you were starting this all over again, this whole journey? I don't think I would have changed anything. I wouldn't be here talking to you today if everything that happened didn't happen through part of my hard work, but, but through the luck of the opportunities that I've met people when I met them, right? Um, often people will say, I've got great advice to give myself a long time ago. I just say, be proud of who I am. My partner would always say to me that like, um, I'm an inherently hopeful person, but when you've seen all the things that I've seen in, at, at such a young age, everything feels hopeful when you're not there. And, you know, some people have um, compared, you know, this pandemic to prison. Are you kidding me? You know, like, uh, you know, uh, I, I say like getting back on your own feet is not going to be hard after this, you know, and I, and I, and I mean that with respect that I know people have been through mental health issues. I know people have suffered and I know people have lost people that I have a lot of respect for and a lot of care and love and show them nothing but that. But now that you've experienced a little, iso a little isolation, start advocating for people who are really trapped. You know, that's, that's, that's what I would say to people because I don't have good advice to give my former self because the only thing that I probably would have changed is starting doing the prison work earlier in my life. You know, I waited a good 10 years to get stuck into it because I was running away from it too. And there was another event in my life that was like, I can't not speak about this anymore. And for the last decade and a bit, I've been doing that work. But that's the only change I've made because if prison didn't happen, I'm look, I wouldn't be speaking to you today. So I don't want to change that. A few more marketing questions if you've got a few more minutes. Um, what do you feel like marketers should be studying or learning more about or, or, or is there any topic that you're trying to learn more about yourself? What I think they should be studying is get your head out of the textbooks and start talking to people again and also see what's happening around you. The reason I say that is because 
you know, we, we, we're stuck in this like conversation that what do people want after this pandemic or what do they want as we're coming to live a balance of a normal life and a, um, a not so normal life? It's obvious. What do you want? Do you want to see friends again? Do you want to hug friend people? Do you want to experience things in real life again? And I think the answers are right in front of you. We haven't leaned into our humanity enough. You know, if brand, the brands that will succeed going forward will put people first. The brands that continue to do the same won't last because people just want to experience life again. We, uh, the people that show care and, and create things for where people can galvanize and be around. I'm not, I don't think that's an overstated thing. I think we haven't, the reason you're not seeing it potentially right now is we're in the summer, right? And um, people are trying to get away, but also people are getting away. That says everything you need to know. People are trying to, exp- trying to bring some of that connectivity back. So whatever you're trying to experience is what everybody else is trying to experience. So when you're working for businesses and brands, that's the thing you should be putting forward. You know, I think about some of the, the new generation of clients we work for, which are tech companies and startups. You know, the reason our industry, like RGA, but also all the other agencies in our space are getting that work is they, they've built their stories around their product and their founder. That doesn't create any semblance of connectivity with a normal consumer or a person in the new world that we're walking into. They're coming to us so they can build stories and a relationship with their people because you know just as easily as like ride hailing apps disrupted the transport uh, the mobility space they can be disrupted too because there's no loyalty all these uh, companies are coming out to our world right now because they want to have a real relationship with their end user with their customer with their with the people at the end of this and you are also as marketers and comms people want to do the same in your own lives so lean into that part if somebody wanted to get involved or or check out reform, be it incarceration or otherwise, what, what would you point them to? Are there causes or, or groups that that you're involved with? Or you think other people should start their journey down that path just to learn more about it? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest ones nationally is just leadership. Like they are the one of the uh, they're a national campaign organization trying to ab- abolish prisons and our justice system right now as it exists as it exists today they're a good place to go to they also have people in all states because i know obviously your listeners are listening from all across america and you know there's different issues on a local level that affect you differently like i live in new york state right now right now you know we've passed so much legislation in the last year but you know we're looking to pass something called clean slate which would wipe the criminal records of three two point five million New Yorkers. That's a lot of people in this state, by the way. <laughs> that's, all, that's like a, a good, a sizable chunk of our state has a record that's now like got a scarlet letter on their back. But there are there are these issues going across America. There's, there's clean state, ironically, has been passed in Michigan before even New York. We think of New York as a liberal state. So, but Michigan has other issues in, with the justice space. So I would start local. And, and if you can't, if you struggle to find people locally, in your state, look at Just Leadership because they also partner with all the local organizations that actually are trying to do, have an impact for your local community in America, right? And that's, you know, they don't take, you know, they, they try and put the people on the ground, the people closest to the problem and support them, you know? And I think that's the best way to get into this because, you know, a, a, lot, a lot of people think when they think of crim- the criminal justice, they think, why has the president not done enough? Most people in the state, um, most people don't realize that our police and our prisons are predominantly run by our states. 
So you want to impact your governor, your 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 mayors, and people like that. Because all politics starts locally, and I would you know urge you to find a local organization. But if you if you can't, just leadership is a great starting point because it can actually connect you to the right people in your state to actually have an impact. Last question for you, I guess, is any parting words for marketers about the opportunity or threat that we face going forward? I, I mean, look, threat is always uncertainty. I mean, look, here's, here's the reality is like we're, while we're talking right now, uh, I mean, I don't even know what wave will be on by the fall, but who knows, right? Like there's just wave after wave of this, but the uncertainty also is the opportunity, right? I think I go back to what I said about like leaning into the human part of this. People just want to be treated like uh, decently and by brands, businesses, and society. And I think the opportunity is to, to connect with them in their home and in real life through experiences. You know, and I think that's what you should lean into because right now people are craving for that connection, you know, and I've seen it just, you know, through some of the work we've been doing recently with some of the brands in the, the Silicon Valley space, but also, you know, some of the titans of our industry who are creating like half hybrid virtual worlds, stroke in-person events to, to make people feel together after this. And I think that is your opportunity if you keep leaning into that. I, I feel like I sound like a broken record, but I, I really feel like we're in a moment of time where people just want to be together or like connect. And that's your opportunity. The uncertainty can only guarantee that people definitely want to be together. That's the one thing. And uh, I, I, I think that's the greatest opportunity for marketers right now. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There, you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.